Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual fireside chats, featuring key industry and city building leaders from our region, their perspectives on the past and the future from the time we recorded, and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, then Mississauga Mayor, Mayor McCallion, and then Chief Planner of the City of Toronto, Jennifer Keysmat, in 2013, in conversation. We really hope you enjoyed this great conversation. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. My name is uh, Mansoor Kazaruni with Page and Steel IBI Group Architects. Uh, I am the co-chair of uh, the ULI's program committee, uh, along with Mark Kindrachuk of Intermarket. And uh, I'd like to thank you all for coming out on this cold, wet evening and attending this evening's uh, fireside chat with Mayor Hazel McCallion. Uh, at the outset, I'd like to thank our sponsors, um, uh, our event sponsor, Bird Construction, Daniels, FMC Law, Cadillac Fairview, Fram Group. Thank you all very much for your generous support. Um, background on uh, the Fireside Chat event. This is actually our fifth uh, Fireside Chat event. and. Um, these discussions have uh, in the past given us great insight into uh, the illustrious careers of some very distinguished individuals. Uh, we've had uh, Ned Goodman here in the past speaking with Michael Cooper, John Love speaking with Blake Hutchison, Eddie Sunshine and Fred Wax, uh, Peter Sharp uh, last year interviewed by uh, John O'Brien. Uh, so uh, this is uh, our fifth event. Um, background on the ULI. Uh, ULI is a not-for-profit education and uh, research institute whose mission is to provide leadership in the responsible use of land and in creating uh, sustainable, thriving, living communities worldwide. Um, tonight's agenda, uh, we will have a question and answer session at 7 p.m. following the discussion tonight and we hope to wrap up uh, no later than 7.30. Uh, we encourage you to submit questions uh, for the Q&A uh, discussion through Twitter. Uh, the address uh, will come up on the screen, the, the Twitter, uh, or, by, or by email. You can email toronto at uli.org, and we'll be receiving your questions, and they will be uh, read out by one of our volunteers. Uh, a quick background on Mayor Hazel McCallion, uh, born on the Gaspé Coast uh, in what she described earlier this evening as a little town. Uh, Mayor McCallion has committed more than 40 years of service to the residents of Mississauga. She's been the mayor since 1978 and is currently in her 11th term. Her leadership and accomplishments on the local, provincial, national, and international stage are far too many to list tonight, but we hope to hear about some of them uh, very shortly. 
Um, so uh, without further ado, I will introduce uh, Jennifer Kiesmat, who's joining her on stage, uh, who is the recently appointed uh, chief planner for the city of uh, Toronto. And uh, thank you, Jennifer, for uh, uh, agreeing to interview Mayor McCallion tonight. And uh, without further ado, I present to you Mayor Hazel McCallion and Jennifer Kiesmat. Well, I must say that this is uh, one of those events that I'm quite confident only comes around for me once in a lifetime. And when I received the invitation from ULI, I said, uh, sorry, could you come by again? What, what, what was that invitation? I am absolutely honored to be here today with you, Mayor Hazel, to have this conversation, to learn from your experience and your insights in so many years in public service. What I'd like to do is start not completely at the beginning, but start at the beginning of your political life, your career in politics. And um, we know politics is, in fact, a difficult life in many ways, a very rewarding life in many ways. And my first big question is, back in the early 70s when you made this decision, what inspired you to choose political life? Okay, well, I retired from the private sector. I worked for Canadian Kellogg that did a lot of uh, engineering in the petrochemical field. Uh, we built a lot of great plants. We built the Palmer plant. That's when I was transferred from Montreal to Toronto, set up the office to build the world's first synthetic rubber plant at Sanary mm. during the war because the natural rubber source had been cut off by the enemy and so the Canadian government decided. And uh, we also, was the company that devised the process to take oils out of the tar sands, Fort mm -hmm. McMurray. So I worked for a very exciting company. And uh, I decided to retire after being with them for 20 some years. And uh, I got very much involved in the town of Streetsville as uh, president of the Streetsville District Chamber of Commerce. And then the mayor of the town of Streetsville at the time asked me to join the planning board. That's when planning boards had some authority. <laughs> and so I uh, joined the planning board. Next thing, I'm chairman of it. And then uh, I could see where the town council was made up of a bunch of people, uh, all men, by the way, uh, and that wasn't a good example. Uh, and as a result, I could see that uh, our, I had an architect on the planning board, and we could see that the decisions by the council was, how do you get the taxes in? So uh, I was encouraged to run for office. First time I ran, I was defeated. It was a one-year term then. And the gentleman who... Uh, was successful, the deputy Reeve at the time, he was the one that went around and decided where all the water lines and sewer lines, but no plans were kept of where they were, but that was no minor detail. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't know where the water lines were, the sewer lines, why should I? Next year, because one year term, can you imagine one year term? Next year I ran and I won. And then the Reeve resigned for 
business purposes, and the council appointed me Reeve. Then in 1970, I ran for uh, mayor of Streetsville and was mayor until the provincial government decided to bring around regional government. So uh, we were concerned as a planning board that the decision makers at the council level, uh, they didn't agree with good planning. They just wanted to put something anywhere to get tax revenue. So it was quite an opposition. First thing I did when I became mayor was hire an engineer to see if we could find out where the water lines and sewer lines were. It was kind of important. So I put Mrs. Uh, Streetsville on a, on a uh, debt-free basis. In fact, the very, we fought regional government, by the way. Streetsville wanted to expand and take over part of Mississauga. And uh, that, Mr. Davis decided that wasn't the way to go. So I, as a result, uh, regional government came along. But I remember well that when we became a part of the city of Mississauga, the town of Mississauga didn't even have an aerial uh, fire ladder, an aerial, a fire truck with an aerial ladder on, because we had two apartment buildings in Streetsville. First thing that happened when we became part of the city, they stole our ladder and put it down in Cooksville. <laughs> it was all a high rise. That disturbed the people more than anything. So this is interesting. You started out uh, 19 years in the private sector, decided to retire, and then your great life work began yeah. in, 68. Many, in many ways. In 68. And it was planning that was a key driver for you. Planning was the basis on which I got into politics. Interesting. And you began to hire professionals, and you've yeah. built up a great professional uh, entity at the city, and there's great respect for the well, bureaucracy quite honestly, you when built. we became a part of the city of Mississauga, we really took it over. <laughs> Is that right, Barry? <laughs> he knows. He was, Barry Lyons was working with Markware then, right? Remember Aaron Mills Parkway? They wanted to put the road through Streetsville. I said, no way, you're going around it. That's why we have Aaron Mills Parkway, right? So in those beginning days, it was, it was a very small place. It was easy to be very yeah. hands-on. Um, how would you characterize your leadership? Are you, you know, do you roll up your sleeves? Are you working really closely with the bureaucracy? Do you kind of empower people and set them free? What's your approach? How have you, how, how have you created that bureaucracy that you have? Well, uh, you know, when regional government was formed in 1978, in which they put Streetsville, Port Credit, and the town of Asaga together, uh, and Brampton. Uh, we, uh, it, it, I sat for two years as the Streetsville representative on the uh, city council, and uh, I was, I was put, I was being put in a negative position. I was always complaining because the town of Mississauga was not well managed, and. Uh, they had no policies, etc. And my expertise in the private sector was policy. Setting policy is to get a, you know, we'd be awarded a contract to build, for instance, Petrofina Montreal, and you had to get organized very quickly to get it done. You had po po policy and procedures, etc. So that was my expertise in the private sector, managing, getting the job done. Really. So you walk in the door, you've got you know, you've got a lot of fixing to do. Where did you start? That's right. So in 1978, I decided that I'm not going to sit here and be negative. 
because I think it affects your whole body. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you become negative in mm -hmm. dealing with your family and everything. So I said, I'm either going to go up or go up. The <laughs> developers put up $60,000 against me. Said, ever let that wild woman in. It'll ruin development in Mississauga. <laughs> Bruce McLaughlin, who is one of the largest developers in Mississauga, he put a lot of money up against me. Became one of my best friends. So, Barry, you know that. In fact, I'm sure your developers put a lot of money up against me, too. <laughs> but I only had $12,000, and my opposition had sixty. But I won. And I, you know. So you had this moment and you said, not going to do that politics of negativity. I'm going to build something up instead of tearing something yeah. down. I ran on a program of planning for people. The providing of community where you serve people. Because I don't know what else we have to do other than serve people and businesses and cetera. I never promised, I have never promised to cut taxes, I can tell you. In fact, I often tell people, your taxes are going up. And I get an applause sometimes, which I've never figured out. <laughs> so so I, I ran on planning for people, and that development must pay its way. And we took into the city of Mississauga a development levy of $50 per house. That was what Streetsville charged. Legal, not legal, but we did it. <laughs> And that was a hydro charge. So I was going to get here later, but this leads very nicely into the conversation we're having on the regional scale right now about how we pay for our transportation infrastructure, how we pay for transit. We've got a pretty good debate going on right now about this conversation, what we're willing to pay for, what we're not willing to pay for. Can you weigh in on that conversation about regional planning and some kind of a regional mechanism or tool for transportation, in, in particular, transit infrastructure? Yeah. Well, one of the greatest faults, as I look back, one of the greatest things that we did not do well, and no municipality has done it well, mm. transportation should have been the basis of all planning decisions, of all development. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at the GDA, why are we in this traffic congestion? Transportation is dealt with Land use, the, when you, when you de determine the land use, transportation is one of the things should be the basis mm -hmm. of the land use decision. And it has never been, and it still isn't. Mm -hmm. We've absolutely made that mistake on a regional scale. Yeah. There's absolutely no doubt well, about that. Well, we made that. it locally and we made it regionally. You know, when you look at uh, uh, what has happened, uh, we, uh, we just haven't made transportation a priority. Well, and one of the challenges is now we're trying to fix something that's really tricky to fix in retrospect. So we're talking about big dollars, $34 billion for a regional plan, but we still really don't have the right kind of land use to support great movement on the, on the region. Yeah. You know, the provincial government has never allowed us to. I used to chair the mayors and chairs of the Greater Toronto Area for 10 years, getting us together to try to look, because we are an economic unit, mm -hmm. 
to try to look at how we could work together. This was voluntary. Then the province got the smart idea to bring in the Greater Toronto Services Board. So we had to disband our voluntary effort. It lasted for a few years and was defeated. Then they brought in the transportation plan. So we're going to put all the transportation together. Until the province, and I've told the Premier this often, until you make Metrolinks responsible for land use in the GTA, it's not going to be successful. Because well, here we are in the GTA approving development without the necessary transportation needs of the GTA being dealt with. Well, couldn't it be that we kind of have a cascading effect where we have a regional transportation plan and we ensure that there's alignment with our local planning mechanisms. The concern I have about weaving those two things together is that you would get crushed under the magnitude and the weight of the task. Like even just as the chief planner in Toronto, we're, we're pretty crushed under the weight of the magnitude of the growth that we see just in the city of Toronto. If that was taken out to a regional entity, yeah, gargantuan task. Yeah, but let me tell you, your building Development in the downtown of Toronto is just booming. Where's the transportation plan? Well, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to develop it's, right now. It's, it's absent. Been, it's 20 years late. It should have happened. No, it's not only 20 years late, but every day you're adding to the transportation problem. And we are too. Not just Toronto, we are too. You know, we know we have gridlock, but it hasn't stopped the development. It's true, but part of our planning framework in Toronto, a big part of it, is about moving less. And moving less is about putting people into environments where they can choose to walk and take transit. So directing our growth to the downtown, we're seeing that. Yeah. People but in the you downtown know, you own know what you less cars. And politicians are just as guilty, by the way. But you forget that there's a movement of goods. Absolutely. You talk about the movement of people. And, you know, if a citizen calls one of my counselors, they turn cartwheels to fix the hole in the road, etc. They don't look at businesses. And if we don't move, if, if we have a lot of logistic companies in the GTA, mm -hmm. and especially in Mississauga, if they can't move their products, our economic base is going to be seriously affected in the GTA. Well, absolutely. And all, all you planners think about, and all the politicians <laughs> think about, is people. And, and the politicians are just as guilty, not, not just the planners. Well, part of what we're trying to do... <clears throat> now I got busy. Part of what we're trying to do is to free up the roads for goods movement. A person can choose to leave their car and get on transit, can choose to live in an environment where they can walk to work. But a truck moving food, moving staplers or binders or whatever it might be, must use the roads. So if we can move people to use different forms, we can free up our road infrastructure for goods movement. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. I'll take it. I'll take it because we're going to need it. Transportation, and we're all guilty, I'm just as guilty as anybody else, it has not been the basis of land use planning. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. It's absolutely true, and I think that's why I'm so glad that we're having this conversation at the regional yeah. level now, right now. 
in trying to change that. Yeah. We have two choices. We don't have three, just two. <laughs> One is to do nothing and just let the crisis, and it's not, some people doesn't think it's a crisis. In my opinion, congestion in the GTA is a crisis. And there are only, people are going to only wake up, the politicians and the planners, and those that own property, when the economic base is affected. And it's being affected, affected now. right now. Can't in major degree. So let's go back to governance for a minute. You mentioned the Greater Toronto Services Board had yeah, a relatively short, you know, short shelf life. Yeah. It strikes me that uh, we've really struggled to figure out our governance model. We're constantly going through well, all let this me give change. Well, an example. You know what really bothers me? Metrolinx was delayed for two years. Do you know why? Because the city of Toronto would, did not want, they wanted control of the vote at Metrolinx. And so finally, the premier had the backbone to move ahead and set us up, put a bunch of politicians on it, including myself. Mm -hmm. One day he called me down to Queen's Park and said, I'm thinking of eliminating the politicians. I said, well, you've really wakened up to the solution get rid of the politicians on Metrolinx and set up independent people to look at. David Miller held up Metrolinx for two years from being formed because he wanted the majority of the vote and the province wouldn't give it to him. So this is interesting because this is one of the challenges I think you can see at a local level in many municipalities, possibly yours is accepted, but definitely in the city of Toronto. People back into their corners, they have a certain perspective and a certain interest, and this is a really good example, you know, the city of Toronto jockeying for its interest, other areas jockeying for their interest, and it strikes me that frequently our inability to move forward is because everyone's backed into a corner and no one's coming out of their corner. And I'd love to hear from you in your experience, how have you been able to get people out of their corners, to get people to collaborate, to get ideas moving forward? Well, I've been working for years to try to get the GTA working together. And the biggest problem is the city of Toronto. <laughs> There's no they way I can it. win this one. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> you folks in Toronto think you're God. <laughs> And you know, you've made a mess of a lot of things. And you, you haven't seen the light that Toronto is the center of the Greater Toronto area. We set up the Greater Toronto Marketing Alliance to promote and sell the Greater Toronto area internationally. And all the 905 regions put in their money and put in their staff and set to work on it. Where was Toronto? They set up their own. So here Toronto so, is a big problem. So, Have you ever considered running for mayor in the city of Toronto? I'll be glad. <laughs> I'll tell you, if I was 40 years younger, I would. <laughs> because the city of Toronto, what happens in Toronto affects us. Absolutely. Seriously. And affects all the regions around. And if we could only get, like I had a meeting of the large German mayors. I'm chairman of the large German mayors of Ontario. And we wait, and we're really doing a great job in trying to find sustainable funding and create jobs, etc. 
Toronto is never at the table. How can you put together the greater Toronto area unless we have Toronto at the table? Well, is that kind of a situation like the big kid on the playground that's kind of the bully that, you know, isn't going to take no. Toronto? Is that the problem? No, it's not their bully. Because they the interest just, is shared. They it's just a shared think, interest. They just think that if it's Toronto, look at what the Toronto Board of Trade did. Let me talk about that. All of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky with no consultation with any boards of trade in the GTA or the Chambers of Commerce, they decide they're going to become the Toronto Region Board of Trade. That's the attitude of Toronto. When Toronto realizes that they're only a part, only a part of the, of the greater Toronto area and that the areas around are growing up very rapidly, that they, and that they have a major role to play, have a major role. I wish I was mayor of Toronto. I, I, you know, they, they could be a leader. They could be shine, a shining leader. Instead, the mayor of Mississauga is doing most of the work of trying to put the greater Toronto area together. Well, you know, I'm only a little Gaspesian. <laughs> it, it, you know, <clears throat> until somebody wakes up to the fact that we have to work together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you could argue that, you know, if you spun it the other way, the change in name for the Board of Trade was about recognizing the regional shared interest. It, it definitely. But remember that the Toronto Board of Trade doesn't represent the entire mm -hmm. GTA. So there's a lot of chambers of commerce around the region oh. that are pretty... In upset. fact, it was the greater... It was the... Board of Trade of Mississauga and the Board of Trade of Brampton and the Chambers of Commerce that put together the Greater Toronto Marketing Alliance. We got them all together and said, and the private sector came on board and helped us. George Heller, who is well known in the Toronto area, a great guy, was the first honorary president of the Greater Toronto Marketing Alliance. So here you are, you've had this great influence at a regional level over many yeah. years. Have you ever considered political office uh, at the provincial level? Has there ever been, has that been a glimmer in your eye at any point? Or is that, it now? That which? Um, uh, provincial leadership. Me? Yes, you. I wouldn't be caught dead. <laughs> I wouldn't be caught dead in either the federal or provincial government. <laughs> And why is that? I wouldn't be caught dead. Too, is it too difficult? I turned down every even. I even had invitation from the Conservative Party when they wanted me to be the leader of the Liberal Party in Ontario before David Peterson took over. They approached me, were prepared to put up all the money for me to run as leader of the Liberal Party. I said, thank you very much. I've got better things to do. <laughs> and what more satisfaction can anybody get than I can get from taking a municipality from 260,000, growing it to 750,000, with an economic base second to none. So tell me, tell what me. What would you do at, all you would do at the provincial government is either be a, I would be a backbencher, no question about it, because I'd be crossing the floor, supporting, <laughs> if, the, if the opposition came up with good legislation, I'd put my hand up and vote for it. And then you'd be kicked out of the party. Come on. See, you're a perfect model of someone who comes out of the corner and follows the good idea. And I think that's what we need more of in politics, following the good idea 
as opposed yeah, to the well, ideology. You see, at the local level, you can do things. Mm -hmm. You can do things. As an MP or a backbencher, what decision power have you got? In Ottawa, it's the prime minister makes all the decisions. Queen's Park is the premier. <clears throat> So let's talk a little bit about the relationship between your private life and your political life. And what I'm curious about are the sacrifices that you undoubtedly have had to make to have this very, very public life. Well, I've been very fortunate. I have a family that has supported me. I had a wonderful husband that was so supportive and, and as I was mayor and mayor of Streetsville and the family, etc. It is tough. Uh, it's, it's, you got to manage it. There's no question about it. Uh, you can't get up in the morning and not know what you're going to do. You have your house to look after, you have your family to look after, and then you have to get to the office uh, to your job. So it's not easy. I'll tell you what I am concerned about. I think the time has come that with all the controls that, they are, being, that are being placed on politicians, that very few are going to offer themselves for office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and from my perspective, it's no, pretty thankless. I have used my influence for the last 35 years to build a city. And after the public inquiry that was called by our famous person, uh, you all know her, uh, uh, the judge said, well, you used your influence. I use my influence every day as mayor. I, That's I the whole point. Oh, you, now you've got to check with an integrity commissioner and find out if you should use your influence. It's not going to encourage people to go on and do the job, mm -hmm. get the job done. And, you know, uh, I don't know. Look but, at what Rob Ford has gone through, whether, you know, Conflict of interest. I declared a conflict of interest on the convention center in the city court. Every time it came to a committee of council, I declared it. The judge said, yes, that I did. But because I tried to get owners to sell the land to the company that my son was in, involved in, before it ever came to council, that's a conflict. Well, how in the world could we get a convention center if the land isn't sold to somebody to build it? I don't know. Secondly, the condition I laid down for the purchase of the land was the hotel had to be built first because the land had a lot of condominiums. Mm -hmm. And I know developers well. They always tell we'll build the economic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you give us permission to do the uh, residential. What gets built first? Residential. Mm -hmm. And the economic portion of it is that. Mm -hmm. So the condition I laid down that the hotel had to be built can the deal. Isn't that interesting? So let's come back to this idea of um, who's going to run for office. Who? who? Who's going to run for well, office? Well, first of all, in this in kind fact, of a I context. Said, I said to a staff member today, I think the person should run her office should be on welfare. She said, Madam Mayor, they got a conflict. <laughs> Own nothing, have no family, because if your family works for somebody, and if somebody can find out that they are connected with something that had the business to do with the city, 
charged with conflict. So in 2013, is public life becoming too difficult? Not for me. You've mastered it, that's no, clear. Not for me, but I can see difficulty down the road for those that go, that run for office. So Seriously just a difficult. quick comparison, when you started, the kind yeah. of scrutiny that existed then and what exists today, how does that affect your day-to-day -day activities? It, it affect what? How does it affect your day-to-day -day activities? The kind of scrutiny that existed 35 years ago, and we know it's changed. There's a lot more media today. How has it changed? Has it made you more cautious? Has it made you more hesitant? Or do you just say, forget it, I'm doing what I'm doing? I'm doing what I'm doing. I only have two more years to do it, and I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to change at all. So if there are some people in the room who aspire to public life, who might be concerned about this context. Well, they have to be prepared. If they're going to go into public life, they have to be prepared. For instance, you know, some newspapers are what I call character assassination rags. And you can name the ones in Toronto. They're out to, to assassinate the the, the you know, I remember the picture, and I don't know how many of you, I'll never forget it. Remember Kretchen and his wife adopted a boy, right? I didn't know if you knew that. And the son at 45, the adopted son, committed some type of infraction and was charged. Kretchen and his son was on the front page of the Globe and Mail. Any other son would have done it? Well, that's another thing. But because it was his son, front page, that's the type of things that the press is portraying of people that are in office. Anybody else's son, it wouldn't be on the front page. It wouldn't be on the, in the press at all, maybe. So there's an issue here. The media is, uh, sees its role, the third eye, as being holding political leaders accountable. And yet, that very accountability is constraining good people from being willing yeah. to go into public life. I say life. to the press, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Mm -hmm. They don't like that. Well, and I think... And, and let me give you, I listened the other night to the story on Mike Duffy, a senator. And the guy that interviewed him is a press reporter. And he said to Mike Duffy, how many years did you serve checking up on politicians doing the wrong thing? Think about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So here I am. I've just started my life as a public servant, as a chief planner in Toronto. Yeah. Only five, five months that I've been doing it. Where were you before that? I was like you. I was in the private sector. I was a private, private right. consultant. So I've made a big leap in terms of trying to figure out, as one counselor said to me, you've got to learn to talk like a bureaucrat. Um, but I think it's precisely because I don't talk like a bureaucrat that I have the greatest potential of being effective. But I want to tell you a little story because um, uh, in a moment with a lack of discretion, I tweeted a tweet several months ago that I should not have tweeted. It upset some people. And I sent out this tweet. It was at City Council. And a City Councilor came up to me and said, people are upset about what you tweeted. And I said, oh was not my intent to upset anyone, I'll delete it. So I deleted it. So the tweet was there for seven minutes. 
the newspaper ran a story. The newspaper ran a story, and in the newspaper article, I said my intent was not to offend anyone. That was absolutely not my intent. The moment I discovered I had in in offended, I removed the tweet. It's like a conversation, and I say something, and someone says, you're absolutely wrong, and I say, oh, so let me get it right then. It was a like a clarification. That incident where that tweet was live for seven minutes gets repeated again and again and again in every newspaper yeah. article. It's inescapable. And it's Well, you're learning quickly. I'm learning the hard way. <laughs> I'm learning the hard way. And a few people have said to me, you've really got to be more careful and think more carefully. Well, I'm almost petrified before I say anything. Uh, because I've become so hyper-conscious of the way my words well, can be misconstrued. Well, I, I got some good advice uh, just about two weeks ago. I meet with a group in Streetsville in a little coffee shop. This guy's a retired firefighter. He said to me, he said, you know, Madam Mayor, I think the future is do nothing in politics. And we have some counselors. And we have, I'm sure there's counselors all throughout the province that sit and do nothing. Pretty hard to criticize them, except they do nothing. Well, and I think that's the great risk to public life. Exactly. It's a great risk and, to and, public life. And, and the staff is going through the same thing. Absolutely. Not like you experience. Absolutely. Now, what, what is so important about that tweet? But the newspapers just love to grab it and emphasize and blow it out of complete proportion. Well, and when I started at the City of Toronto and I met with all of my staff and was trying to get a sense of the landscape at the city, one of the things that I heard again and again is that staff had retreated in their roles and I discovered all these brilliant, passionate people who were excited about city building, many of whom said they had retreated, exactly. almost like turtling, exactly. because any time they came out, they got their neck lopped off. And so there was this retreating. And I think the same thing happens for uh, public servants as it does for public politicians. Well, it, it, it's happening with public service, but more so for politicians. Yes. Public service has been escaping it to a certain degree, but it's going to come out. Talk to our city manager. I think she's, she's in here. the audience. You know, uh, so it's, what's the solution? What, what's the solution? What's the solution? How do we move forward? How do we invigorate public life in this kind of a climate? going to be very, very difficult, very, very difficult as I see it. Uh, I, don't, I don't envy the role of future politicians. I think it's, uh, they're, they're going to have to be so careful. Uh, you know, there's a lot of risk in being a politician. You have to take risks. And, uh, but today we're just being lowered down to the point where you really, if you want to be a success, do nothing. Don't make any decisions. If you don't make decisions, they can't criticize you. Except to say you didn't make a decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They can't criticize you because you helped this person or you helped that person or you did this. So what do you feel is your boldest decision? You know, what are some of your boldest decisions? Oh, you know, the I moments know. where you really went out on a limb. Well, one of the boldest decisions was uh, during the derailment in 1979. I was sort of a young mayor then. And uh, one of the boldest decisions was to phone Ottawa and tell them to get somebody down here without a pair, a guy with a pair of boots wandering around and doing nothing. 
and the minister transported that, who now is out in Alberta, will never forget that. And it was a bold decision because we were going nowhere on this uh, train derailment with a, uh, a chlorine tank with a big hole in it and, uh, and, and escaping into the air, etc. And it was a bold decision. I took took a bull by the horns and phoned Ottawa. So immediately they sent a crew down by plane to help us with the decision mm -hmm. that we, mm -hmm. we had to make on the derailment. That was a rude awakening. I was only appointed in 19, or elected in 1978 and had to handle a major disaster. Had to evacuate 250,000 people. It was the largest evacuation in North America at the time. So that threw me into decision-making pretty quickly. So part of why that was successful was because you had the networks to call up the right people to make that happen. Is that, yeah. Was that a yeah. part of it? The, the province was with us, but the federal government had to get with us, and they, they sent down a guy, I remember, wandering around and doing nothing. <laughs> so I went to the, got to the Minister of Transportation at the time and said to him, you've got to get staff down here. You've got to get qualified people down here. He's never forgotten me for it because he said, I'll never forget the phone call he made. <laughs> I was pretty upset because we had a lot of people out of the city. So you've always seemed at the right moment to be able to get the right ear of whether it's a provincial leader or a federal leader. How have you done that? How have you been able to kind of work across political boundaries and work across jurisdictions? Yeah. Well, my politics is basically conservative with a liberal point of view great social conscience, and looking for a heck of a lot of reform in government. Is there a party name we can and, put on that? I, I take them all on. I really don't. Right now, I'm, I just can't believe that Horvat and Tim Hudak is asking for a public inquiry, and all it will do is put a lot of money in lawyers' pockets. What happened on the gas plant is quite simple. OPA approved that Loreland project 14 years ago, never consulted with the city, landed it in the midst of a residential area, mm -hmm. etc. And I've been working with the government all those years to try to find out a way around of canceling that contract. The province made a terrible decision by not canceling before there was a hole in the ground, right? They started the work. Yeah, start the work. And they canceled it. Anybody, I don't know who would deny that they canceled it to save four positions. And if you cancel a contract, you better be prepared to pick up the tab. Mm -hmm. And you don't know what it is because you don't know how many lawsuits are involved, etc. What more does Tim Hudak and Horvat want to know about? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Do you? But a public inquiry, the only reason for a public inquiry is character assassination of those that made the decision mm -hmm. at a very high cost to the taxpayers. So isn't That's this, what the inquiry in Mississauga was all about. So isn't this the catch-22 around the earlier conversation we were having around holding public servants accountable? It used to be it used to be that a public servant was, in fact, an esteemed position. And today, we tend to go after our public servants, and this is actually a good example of that. Exactly. 
Well, yeah, I mean, they wrote to find out who sent a memo and cetera. It was a very bad decision to cancel it when it was half up. And half up is more costly than canceling it before it started. Because they got to tear it down, they got to replace it, etc. Very, very bad decision. But what more do we need to know? It was a bad decision. So tell me, what has been the toughest challenge that you faced? What has been the most difficult? Is it, you know, is it weekend meetings? The most meetings? difficult was I fought regional government, and I still believe that regional government in the region appeal is wrong. It's duplication second to none. It's costing the taxpayers a lot of money, and it just causes another big administration. We are the sixth largest city in Canada. Do we need to be in a region? Yes, we need to be in the region. I would prefer to be a part of the region of the greater Toronto area as a whole. Here we have Caledon, a rural area, that if they tried to fix all their bridges, it would bankrupt them. So they're in the region so that Mississauga, especially for all these years, has been financing the region. Brampton is coming along now. Uh, and By the way, Brampton now is interested in getting out of the region. The time we wanted to get out of it, they weren't interested. So the regional, regional model... government is unnecessary. It's another administration. So but why do we need two administrations? But it sounds like you're suggesting that really the region makes sense, but it needs to actually be the greater Toronto-Hamilton region. Exactly. No, leave Hamilton out of that. Leave Hamilton out. <laughs> <laughs> Janice was at our meeting on Thursday, and the mayor of Hampton, the mayor of uh, Hamilton says he has no gridlock. And my comment was, I've never figured out how you ever got into the GTA in the first place. <laughs> you have to have gridlock to be a part of the club. <laughs> You know, Hamilton should not be in the GTA. If you're going to create, it, 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 it should be the Golden Horseshoe. If you really want a region, it's the Golden Horseshoe. But Hamilton got, it's an appendage to the GTA. <laughs> they may have appendix problems, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so this is interesting because there's a variety of different ways of slicing the governance of the region. And the province, um, the provinces moved around a lot in how they do that. <laughs> huh. Boy. Now we have that's an understatement. Now we have Metro. Now we have Metrolinks. Where should that conversation be happening? Where is it a provincial conversation? Is it a collaboration? Well, you know, Where do we have that discourse? My greatest hope in Metrolinks, and to date I haven't been disappointed, and I hope I won't be, that. The decision, there's, no, there's not a lot of money. And uh, I'm concerned about the stand of some politicians that everything has to be underground. You know what? If we had lots of money, let's put it all underground. The point is we don't have the money. So where we can do light rail transit, we should do light rail transit if we're concerned about moving people and goods because it's the faster way to get to the, the end. The, the, the point is that the decisions or recommendations of Metro, Metrolinks has got to be based on need, mm -hmm. not politics, mm -hmm. because decisions in the past have been based on politics. Mm -hmm. You know, 
Where did the subway go? Nowhere. The one that was built for $900,000, close to a billion dollars, mm -hmm. goes nowhere. It was politics. Mm -hmm. Two politicians, local and provincial, getting together. So Metrolinx, and they better not veer from it, because if they do, I'm ready to really go after them. <laughs> Based on priority. If that priority is a project in Toronto, even though I have one in Mississauga, that's where the money should go. If it's going to make the greatest contribution to the impact, uh, uh, to the gridlock in the GTA. We've got to get away, away from these political decisions mm -hmm. and spend the money, the, the little we have, on priority. So your leadership in Mississauga has been characterized by a clear vision, strong municipal leadership. What's the role of ongoing public consultation? What's the role of bringing people well, into decision-making? Well, I say making? to the people of Mississauga, if we ever left the planning of Mississauga up to them, Mississauga would be a hell of a mess. You know, you get public input, and it's not all bad, and it's very essential that you consult with the public. But remember, you're the decision maker. And it's up to you to take the staff professional recommendations. Mm -hmm. And my staff knows that they better come forward with professional. I don't want them to play politics, and they don't. Mm -hmm. They come forward with their best recommendation and not cater to the mayor or members of council. And if we say no, even though they're, they're right, and it's that then it's our responsibility, mm -hmm. not theirs. Mm -hmm. They've done their job. So in my opinion, uh, we've got to have staff in all the municipalities that are professional and will give us their professional advice. Mm -hmm. That is extremely essential. And not try to play politics or play to councillors or the mayor. Well, there's some models across the country. Vancouver's a, a, a really strong example where there's a very strong separation between the professional staff and the political staff. Toronto is the opposite. Toronto, it's like this. It's completely, in, it's completely entwined. Um, Mississauga, it sounds like it's much more, oh. it's much more separate. Well, where's all the staff here today? Is that right? <laughs> They, they are asked to give us their best professional advice. They're not always right, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. And the politicians are sometimes right. <laughs> but always don't feel badly because we make a decision that is not in line with their recommendation, but then it trans the responsibility then transfers from them up to us. And we're accountable. They're not. In other words, you know, every four years we come up for election. So the people will judge us on the decisions we made. So let's talk a little bit about the shape of the city, the way the city's been built out. Mississauga is a suburban municipality. You now, through your strategic plan, are pursuing the Huron-Ontario corridor, focusing on creating a more vibrant downtown. Do, could you talk a little bit about that shift that's going on in the city right now? Well, our biggest problem is that, you know, I, I, I don't know of any city around the world, except maybe in Australia, that started from a hayfield <laughs> with a core. Because most cities have spread from a core no matter how minor it was. Maybe it was a railway stop, right? And spreads from there. 
We started in a hayfield <laughs> just a few years ago. Square one. I was Mary Streetsville at the time, invited to the turning of the sod of square one in a hayfield. When I was elected mayor in 1978, I sat in my office and cows and horses grazed across the field mm -hmm. where the Marilyn Monroe building is now. That's not many years ago. It's not, and the trajectory of the life of cities. Yeah. So we've had Mississauga a, we've a baby had a city. struggle to build a city uh, and to get in the city core mm -hmm. the things that we want. We have a vision, there's no mm -hmm. question about it. The staff has come up with, with the help of consultants with a good vision. Mm -hmm. But we don't own any land, like the Hershey mm -hmm. Center should have been in the city core. Mm -hmm. But nobody would take up the challenge to put the Hershey Center in the city core. When Sher the only reason Sheridan College is there is because we bought the land that was supposed to be mm -hmm. for the convention center. We bought the land and leased it to Sheridan College. So I don't know, uh, we, we just haven't been able to build. I remember that one plan for the city core we, we had a vision of 12 million square feet of office space in the city core. We have very little office mm, space mm -hmm. in the city core. So we've got a challenge that most cities don't have. Well, and one of those challenges is that cities are often a product of their time, and there have been different trends in urban planning, and Mississauga is a product of a moment in time in urban planning that was focused on single-family dwellings yeah. in it's a product of its time I'm wondering if you can comment on what it means for the city moving forward given yeah. that it has that that well form. I'm known as the queen of sprawl that's what <laughs> the papers call me. I don't know I don't know sprawl occurs in all cities mm -hmm. in fact I believe Don Mills is sprawl mm -hmm. that was a pretty big development in Toronto mm -hmm. So we're not the only one that has sprawl, mm -hmm. but it, it's true. When Markburg came out and Cadillac Ferry, et cetera, uh, all the, all they, and that's what the people wanted. That's what the market called for was single family homes. Mm -hmm. And to convert it to high density has not been easy because mm -hmm. people don't like density. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we, we've, we've done a, our density, if, I, if Ed is here, aren't we second in the GTA with density next to Toronto? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So well, we, it's we, interesting. We, we're trying to convert to density, but I'll tell you, it's not an easy, easy job. Well, you have to fight with the landscape and fight with the form that yeah. you have because that form was not designed to be no. high no. density. So it's really tricky to adapt it and turn it to something else. But I, I think it can be done. It can be adapted. One of the things we're seeing in the city of Toronto is in some of our suburban neighborhoods, particularly on the periphery of the city, is that there's a lot of invisible density in as much as a lot of these single-family homes actually have many, many people living in them. Oh, we have that in Mississauga. I remember in one election in one residential unit in, in uh, you remember when they used to go around and make up the voters list? The government used to do it. I remember in one fam in one residence in Malton, there were 22 people living in the house. As, as the councillor said, the beds never got cold. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got a pretty high density, and in some ways, if 
um, a lot of those people have a car because it's the best way to move. That's part of the yeah. movement problem. We estimate we have 30,000 illegal apartments in wow. Mississauga. Wow. And uh, the only way we ever know about them is people complaining, and then we investigate it. And unless we get permission to enter, which we don't have, except going to court, uh, the province doesn't give our fire department the right to enter mm -hmm. without so permission. So in, in Vancouver, there's a movement that uh, it's a bit unfortunately named. It's called Echo Density. Yeah. But the idea is around adding density in laneway homes and in coach houses and through additional units on the back of residential homes as a way of adding more density in suburban neighborhoods and in suburban areas. Is that the kind of idea that Mississauga might consider moving forward? Yeah. My concern is that we have spent, as I said the other night, we have spent a lot of money with the province insisting we have an official plan. The province has insisted we have secondary plans. And we've built our services based on that planning. Mm -hmm. Because you've got to serve people, and you've got to serve businesses, but let's take people. So we build community centers and libraries, etc., based on that population that will be produced with all that very expensive planning. Now comes second units in residential homes. What does that do to our planning? Our community centers are loaded now. We add another. 10 to 15, 20,000 people with, with second units, it throws our planning right out the window. Well, if, yeah. you had the, if you had the cash lying around, around most of those community centers, you've got land. You no. could build them out and add more amenities. Not in all cases. Not in all cases. No. You know, remember why Thatcher was defeated? She believed in a head tax. Mm -hmm. And the only solution to all this increase density that wasn't planned, wasn't planned, is head tax, not property tax. Well, I think people <laughs> would argue you could have a and gas tax. she got tax, defeated, so I'm could, not suggesting you know, it. Right. <laughs> That's why you've been here as long as oh, you have. <laughs> you see, it's, it's interesting. The province mandates all this. And they say every five years, you have to look at your official plan. You have to bring it up to date. And then all of a sudden, out of a clear blue sky, they come in with legislation and says, oh, this is mandated. You've got to do this. What does that do to all our planning process? Mm -hmm. we, we, we plan a library on servicing so many people within an area. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had criteria that uh, for, a, 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 for an indoor swimming pool, it was 50,000 people we would build one. Mm -hmm. Outdoor swimming pools was 25,000. Uh, community center to accommodate so many people. But what does it do when all this density comes in, which is fine, better use of land, no question about it, and more people? So it throws your planning right out the window. Well, wouldn't it be fair to say, though, um, if, you, if we um, look at the services and the amenity that you've been able to provide in Mississauga, in many ways, 
you provide the Rolls-Royce version. You've got wonderful community centers. You've, got, you've integrated your libraries with your community centers, which is a, yeah. a model across the country. Would it not be fair to assume that moving forward, that that level of service is, in fact, going to go down? Like, I think about areas where we're adding a lot of density in the city the of Toronto. You don't get the Rolls-Royce anymore. That, that, you know, that, that model's gone. Well, it's not really Royal Royce, uh, Royal Rolls-Royce <laughs> service, because our community centers now are overloaded mm -hmm. because uh, of the illegal apartments, for one thing. Secondly, with the densities that are occurring, right. that have occurred to date, right. because many of those the criteria that we use for planning was based on Mm -hmm. Mainly single-family homes, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. that was the, mm -hmm. the time of the day. So now we have to, you know, we have to re-replan mm -hmm. based on this. Are you surprised by the way Mississauga has become this wonderful magnet for new immigrants? Is that something that you would have envisioned 30 years ago? No. It's they love Mississauga. Mm -hmm. Well, and it comes back to these amenities because having a great library having access to a great school and a recreation center is a really important part of beginning well, to integrate. Well, Toronto declared themselves as a sanctuary for immigrants. We've been a sanctuary for years. Mm. <laughs> we don't have to declare it. We're it. <laughs> what I'd like to do is shift the conversation a little bit and take some questions from the floor oh, to give all of you an opportunity. This is what question. you need to be afraid of. Uh, but I think you can handle it. There's some microphones in the back corner. If anyone's interested in asking a question, you're more than welcome just to stand up and line behind, lined up behind the mic, and uh, I will uh, direct you and let you know. And I think we have a first question here. Go ahead. No, I'm just going to bring the microphone. Oh, you're bringing the mic out. Okay, great. Uh, so just throw your hand up in the air if you if you have a question. And while we're waiting for some of you to get over your shyness. Um, I'm very curious. What is your favorite spot in the city? In Mississauga? What is it? Yeah, your favorite spot in Mississauga. My home. Your house. <laughs> I got a beautiful backyard. Wonderful. Okay, so after your home, where do you love to be? And don't uh, say the office. <laughs> uh, I, have a river, I have two spots, Riverwood, uh, Riverwood area, the Riverwood Park, and uh, the... Uh, uh, Lake Promenade Park on the on the credit. So this is lake. interesting that you've chosen parks because yeah. Mississauga has a really amazing amount of parkland. Yeah, we have 7,000 acres of parkland. Which is, it's mind-boggling. When we talk about adding more density, mm -hmm. you can't add a lot more density unless you have that park That's space. Right. So you've yeah. got one of the key criteria that you need mm -hmm. in order to add park space. Sorry, yeah, in order to add density. And we, we're developing our waterfront. Uh, nobody knows about it, but it's fine. We, uh, <laughs> it's being preserved for people. We don't have high rises on the waterfront. Nothing, nothing below uh, Lakeshore can be more than four stories high. So do we, where's the, sir, go ahead. Stand up, please. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Rod Nail. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Madam Mayor. Thank you for doing this. Uh, my question is, in Europe, uh, this goes back to transit-based planning. In Europe, they have uh, been doing transit-based planning
for years, for decades, centuries in some cases, where transit goes in first and they plan around it, Paris, London, yeah. et cetera. How is it that Toronto and Mississauga, for that matter, hasn't taken that example, and why is it we feel we have to reinvent the wheel? Why did we not learn from what Europe has been doing for centuries? Well, you know, I remember years ago that the transit system in Toronto was considered one of the best in North mm -hmm. America. Americans used to come up and look at the transit Absolutely. system here. I was on the uh, inter international or the uh, uh, American transit uh, organization representing Canada for one year. And uh, uh, they used to, this is a number of years ago, they used to talk about the Toronto transit system. And so what has happened, I guess, is the transit system has been neglected. I don't think it's the fault of the city. Uh, we were building, we started to build transit a number of years ago in Mississauga Public Transit and Toronto Transit. Along came Mr. Harris as Premier of the province and cut out all transit subsidy. We were given 75% of the capital cost of a bus. That got completely cut out and we were given I think Toronto got more subsidy than we got. But if I recall, it was 175 to 18% of the operating deficit of transit. That all got cut completely by the province. And uh, I think the TTC, uh, it was a setback to the TC. Mm -hmm. I know it was a setback to us. Mm -hmm. And we just had a small transit system, but it was mm -hmm. a setback. 75% of the purchase mm -hmm. of the bus. So, quite honestly, I, I think, I think the, the vision of public transit in, the, in, in Toronto itself mm -hmm. sort of got sidetracked. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I think it is. It's the only explanation I have. It. I was in Portland, Oregon a few years ago and uh, meeting with some city staff there and I mentioned that I was from Toronto and uh, they responded with glee about our transit system and yeah. said, in Portland, we have been trying to emulate yeah. and create a system like what you have in Toronto, where exactly. you integrate subway with light rail, with buses, and provide extensive yeah. coverage across the whole city. And it was such a shake to the head because we're so frustrated with the system in the city and to realize that it, in fact, at one point in time was, of course, a system yeah. to emulate. And we've, uh, but we stagnated. We stagnated, and it all comes down to money. Because I can tell you, there are many, many transit plans. The planning, and for the TTC, there are many expansion plans. The problem's not the plan. The problem is the money to in invest in the, in the framework. There's no country, in, 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 I don't know of any country in the world that the federal government doesn't plow millions and millions into transit. The federal government here doesn't do it. I used to come back. I used to be envious. I learned what was happening down there. And they would say, well, what does your federal government do? Nothing. Help us Nothing. with transit. And Can you make a phone call about that? <laughs> I made a few phone calls. <laughs> but, you know, the, the federal government, uh, we've been asking for a, for a transportation strategy for the country, not just for mm -hmm. GTA. And the federal government is not moving on it. They, it's all ad hocery. They give us uh, 
gas tax, not even fuel tax, by the way. They, they really pulled a smart one on us, gave us gas tax. Fuel tax would be more money. So, uh, you know, finally they got, they, they decided to do that. But think of the years mm-hmm. that we got nothing. And in the States, they plowed billions into transit, the federal government. Well, and the further challenge is that there's been a real um, immobilization at the planning level, I think. We've been, we haven't been moving because there hasn't been any money. But even if the money arrived tomorrow for the downtown relief line, for example, an environmental assessment would need to be undertaken. We would be 10, 15 years away from making it happen because we've stagnated to such an extreme. Well, we're over-regulated in this country. There's no question mm-hmm. about it. I'd love to be a mayor in China. (laughs) Decide today we're going to build a road. Decide today we're going to do the high-speed train from Beijing to Shanghai. (laughs) And in two years, it's done. Here we got to go through. I always say we spend so much time and money finding out if we can do it that by the time we're finished that, we don't have the money to do it. To do it. Or we've, or we've been fighting about how to do it by the time we, time we yeah. get to the end. Do we have another question? Yeah. Uh, sorry. I'll just stand up. Okay, uh, go ahead, Paul. Paul. Bedford, uh, and I had the pleasure of serving on the Metrolist Board with Hazel for the first term. And we got the plan done, but as we all know now, the question of the day is the funding. So I'm dying to ask Hazel, there's four campaigns underway right now to try and educate the public about all the one of them is the City of Toronto campaign, fueling congestion. Another one is the Metrolink campaign. Another one is Civic Action. And there are, are many more people, oh, thank you, that are involved in this exercise. And there's a whole range of funding tools that have been discussed. And you and I know many of them. From the, Every one of them are controversial. They're road tolls, they're sales ta- regional sales tax, they're regional parking levies. They're, they're all tough decisions. And in the next six months, we have to bite the bullet on this. As most people here in this room know, Metrolinx has to submit the investment strategy recommendations to the Premier by June the 1st of this year. So I would like to know, in your best advice, Hazel, what kind of tools do you think make the most sense for us to generate the two plus billion dollars every year for the next 25 years to get the kind of transit that we all want? Well, first of all, uh, they've done all the research on the tools, so it's very important that we know what research has been done and how those tools have applied in other parts uh, of the world. They've done a worldwide research on it. So for me to choose the tool, I would have to know what, what it would produce. I think it's going to be an extremely hard sell, uh, be, and uh, uh, it, it it's going to have to happen. There, there's got to be tools, and it may be more than one tool. It may be a number of tools. And uh, the public uh, are not going to be happy. There's no question about it. So the decision makers are going to have to make a decision and get on with it. Uh, if you ask people that want their taxes to go up, I think it would be sold in a much easier way if the people knew it was dedicated the money they get would be dedicated and wouldn't go into the general funds of the province.
province or the municipality. Uh, but it's not going to be an easy sell. Uh, do you, people we think don't we have, want taxes. Do you think we have the political leadership to be that gutsy? We need we, some gutsy decision-making. But how, how can you come back? How can you come back? The leader of the Conservative Party saying he thinks that by us cutting costs at both the provincial level and local level that we can finance the 50 billion capital project. Mm -hmm. That's not possible. Mm -hmm. Yes, there can be money cut out, no question about it, and especially, by the way, in Toronto. <laughs> I would like to give you a little tour of my division. <laughs> uh, Where we don't, we don't get cookies don't. and muffins like you uh, do well, in Mississauga. Well, I think the mayor of Toronto has done a good... <laughs> I, I think the mayor, the mayor of Toronto has done a good job of cutting the costs. There's no question about it. Uh, but when you have the leader of the Conservative Party saying, well, we don't know, we're going to reduce taxes, there's no such thing as reducing taxes. It's not, it's not a reality. That's putting your heads in the sands. It's interesting that, that, the, that he's saying that, but we at the local level raise taxes. I don't know. We do it every year. Mm -hmm. Every municipality, there's very few municipalities in this province that doesn't raise the property tax. Everything. Well, and out west, they're raising them 6 7%. So there we have the situation. And in my opinion, it's going to be another tax or another couple of taxes to make, make it up. As I say, do nothing and live with the transit, mm -hmm. with the gridlock, mm -hmm. or do something and help pick up the tab for it. That's the only two choices we have. Yes, you can cut costs. There's no question about it. You can all do that. I think we do a fairly good job in Mississauga cutting costs, etc. I think we do a very good job, if you really want to know. Our staff comes forward every year with millions, two or three millions, cutting and cutting, finding new ways of doing things. We do that. There's always somewhere to cut costs, but it's not going to touch the capital costs. The capital costs. Not the operating and maintenance. Which is a whole Capital other cost piece. is a one-shot deal. Operating and maintenance. And my position is that the province is going to have to fund the capital cost. And the property tax then can struggle with the maintenance and operation. Because no subsidy, no transit system is 100% user fee. There's a great article that came out recently that argued that uh, the great failing of municipal finance in North America is that we only planned for capital costs and didn't anticipate the demands of long-term infrastructure maintenance costs. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, municipalities for years ago, many years ago, their capital planning is year to year. Mm. But now most municipalities are in a 10-year phase, mm -hmm. so there's big improvement. Do we have another question from the floor over here? Uh, Gil Penalosa? Right oh, oh, okay. Uh, so this question... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What? Can I go ahead? Go ahead. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> okay, so this question comes via Twitter from Michael Fox. He asks, Jennifer, what are the key challenges you're currently facing? And Mayor McCallion, do you have any advice? 
Oh, what's that? That's fantastic. So the question is, what are the challenges I'm currently facing, and what are your, what's your advice for my challenges? So I'll tell you some of the challenges that I'm facing. Okay. Um, we, we've touched on them this evening. I've been, I've been talking about them. But the biggest challenge that I'm struggling with in my role is this um, inertia around being able to build consensus for an idea and then move forward and do it. Just do it. And this comes back to the notion of people backing into their corners and not being able to identify the shared interest and move forward. So, uh, so the question I would have to you in terms of advice that I'm looking for, as the chief planner in the city of Toronto, you've identified the problem that Toronto can be on the regional scale. What advice would you give me as a chief planner in trying to move forward some bold ideas around transit planning? Well, first, oh gee, you really led me into something. <laughs> first of all, what lacks, what is lacking in Toronto is an, or, over, cor, an overview, a corporate overview of the city by the politicians. You mean like a vision, yeah. a shared vision? Shared vision. Mm. So that's your problem. Mm -hmm. But that's a political uh, we, problem. We've been able to develop that. I, I'm absolutely amazed at the city of Mississauga in which, you know, as we sit at the planning committee and we're all there, as to the involvement of the councillors in other councillors' wards and commenting and questioning. To me, that is the only answer. You, you've got to have a council and with, what have you got, 44? 44. Well, you only need 25, so you get rid of all those others. Uh, that was, that's, I find that as I read the newspapers, mm -hmm. that uh, the councillors have not, they don't seem to have an, over, uh, an overview of the, uh, of the uh, 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 an overview of their decision making that it's good for the city as a whole rather than just their ward. And I don't know how you eliminate that. I don't see how you can. Are you a believer in ward, a ward structure versus a citywide structure? Do you believe uh, pretty strongly in the ward system? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to make a comment on that. I've, had, I've heard a lot of debate about it. Our ward system works. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say. And, but it doesn't work in your area. Mm -hmm. So. Therefore, our ward system does work. I mean, we have councillors commenting, criticizing or commenting on what's happening in other wards. Mm -hmm. Like at the planning committee, it just, and we don't, there used to be an attitude, well, you know, if the ward councillor says that they want, then that's what they want. That has disappeared in mm -hmm. Mississauga. Very, very seldom does mm -hmm. that come up anymore. Well, and in defense of the culture we have at the City of Toronto, one of the challenges we have is the volume. We're the second fastest growing city in the world. So the volume means that often yeah. it's necessary to defer because yeah. there's just, you know, we have wards with 120 yeah. development applications in one ward. Yeah. So deferring to the ward, the ward councillor actually becomes a necessity because it's just difficult given the volume. We have 4,000 applications a year. Yeah, and, and you have the problem, you know, I've never... It never understood how the province overnight decided that all the municipalities in Toronto should be one. Mm 
-hmm. I haven't known of any company yet in the private sector that would take over six companies at one time. Mm -hmm. They usually mm -hmm. take one over and meld it in. And uh, the province all of a sudden decided as of January the 1st of a certain year, there would be amalgamation of all the municipalities. They created a chaos second to none. That's absolutely true. And one of the things that's been most shocking to me arriving yeah. is to see how the whole city is still reeling exactly. from amalgamation. So let alone getting, pro getting visionary, the city just trying to administrate the yeah. volume of the city oh. has been a gargantuan challenge. And then add on top of that the amount of growth that we've had. And yeah. it's very difficult to be having the, co the proactive conversations we need to have because it's just a matter of kind of making do and then take an environment where we're continually decreasing the resources because we've had many years of zero tax increase, which means as our, as our city has been growing and our development applications have been growing, mm -hmm. our resource has been decreasing because we're not even keeping up with inflation as a municipality. So it's like a perfect storm. You add all of that together, and then you wonder why there aren't people sitting around being visionary. In part, it's because it's just this unbelievable task. You know, harmonizing our zoning by our law has been... Oh, well, we've, we... You know, we how do you do that? Years. We have a zoning by law for the entire city. You still don't have one. Mm -hmm. Is that right? We might by the end of the month. <laughs> Secondly, <might. laughs> the other thing you have to do, and I don't know whether the politician... Your residential taxes are far too low, and your industrial, cap, uh, industrial office is far too high. Mm. So we're getting a lot of industrial, uh, certainly office commercial, because your taxes are, I believe, unless they've come down a bit, no, they're used high. to be three times the, yeah. the cost of a square foot of office space in Toronto. Yeah. But our residential taxes are higher, and, yes. and I do get that the odd time, saying, well, you know, in Toronto, I only paid 3000 or something. Mississauga were paying 4500 I said, yeah, but think of the wonderful services you're getting. <laughs> I was kind of hoping someone would, would clap when you said that. That would have been appropriate. Uh, we'll take one last question for the floor. We just have a minute or so left. That it, when you're saying that it's a perfect storm, we're gonna, everybody knows we're gonna increase the population by 50% in the next 20 years in the extended GTA. But nevertheless, we're talking, 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 and not doing a lot. You are a doer. So what would you recommend to the politicians? Because it can be such a magnificent opportunity to create a fantastic, vibrant, and healthy GTA, or it could be a horrible mess. We're gonna grow by 50%. I mean, if we were gonna, if we had a magic wand and we could do half of Toronto or half of Mississauga or half of any community, even the best half, we would do it even better. That is the magnificent opportunity that we have. But nevertheless, this doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency around public mm -hmm. transit, around parks and sidewalks and safe streets for the children and the older adults. So what would you recommend? What, what would you think are the, the key priorities for decision makers from the private sector, from the public sector, and for elected officials to make now in order to have a wonderful GTA in the next, in the next 20, 30 years. 
Well, I, I don't believe in a large government for the GTA, because I think uh, government, when government gets too big, it's not very effective. Uh, you lose control, for yeah. one thing. Uh, you know, remember when I was mayor of Streetsville, I used to sign the welfare checks. And some <laughs> I held up, because I knew what they were doing they shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> That's now, <laughs> you don't dare ask if somebody's on welfare. It's not permissible. So big government is not the answer. Mm. What I would like to see in the GTA is an over, an, a, a, a coordinating body in the GTA, like we have with the Greater Toronto Marketing Alliance that looks after international promotion of economic development. It's only one aspect. But what we need is, is some structure that we, the politicians in the GTA, get together. There's nothing now, absolutely nothing. It's all disappeared. Metrolinx is not it. Metrolinx is only dealing with, in fact, they're only dealing with transit. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to deal with transportation, but they're only dealing with transit. They're not dealing with roads. Mm -hmm. MTO is still messing around with that. In the roads, etc. So we lack coordination. There are those that believe that we should have a government structure. I don't agree with a government structure. I think it's far too big. Look what's happened in Toronto with putting all those bodies together. Uh, it'll take, uh, I, I would say it'll take another 10 to 15 years to sort that out, to get them working together, because as she has said, so it's coordination that's needed, and uh, I, I hope somebody will, will put it together, and it needs the mayor of Toronto to lead it. So what are your hopes? I don't know. But that's my advice, a coordinating body. That we meet on a regular basis, as we were doing so well, even without Toronto, um, meeting and talking about the issues and, and rep making representation to the federal and provincial government, even though we weren't a, we weren't a formalized structure, but we were still doing it on a voluntary basis. Now we have nothing, absolutely nothing. Mayor Hazel, the time has gone by in an absolute flash. It's been like a flash in the pan. I wish we had another hour or two. I'm going to turn over the floor to Leslie Wu, who's going to close our session. So first of all, thank you very much to Jennifer and uh, your worship. Uh, let's give a little round of applause. So I, I think we'll all agree it has been a remarkable evening to witness uh, what, you know, the commonality which is stretching, and, I, and Paul Bedford uh, let me know it's five decades between Jennifer <laughs> and uh, Hazel, so we are, it's quite a privilege to have this conversation. First of all, a belated happy birthday, Your Worship. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to, in particular, thank the mayor, first of all, for enlightening and sharing with us um, her origins as a planner for the people to thank her for what she has sacrificed in public life and, and, and the portfolio that she has um, delivered through the city of Mississauga. 
to thank her for uh, taking the risks that you have done and by being a doer and not just doing nothing. And also for being what I classify as the modern woman. Mm -hmm. um, you describe yourself um, in terms of your politics as very multifaceted. And I think um, we would say that the citizenry of this region and Mississauga and the many cities here have this very complex understanding of who they are. And it's not so singular anymore. So you do, in fact, at, your, at 92, represent many of us. And um, in many respects, to thank you also as a resident of Toronto for being one of Toronto's greatest champions. And it is our loss that you don't want to run for mayor, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so um, without further ado, I really want to uh, express our appreciation. Um, I also want to thank the event sponsors, Bird Construction, Daniels, FMC Law, Cadillac Fairview, Fram Group. And I particularly want to thank um, the ULI, Urban Land Institute uh, Women's Leadership Initiative, which is, of which I am a part because uh, we were particularly excited to have two significant women from this area to be part of the um, fireside chat. And <clears throat> our initiative um, it, at ULI is really focusing on celebrating the success of women in building a better Toronto. And what better two people we could have here to represent that. So um, thank you again. I have a couple of housekeeping uh, announcements, if you don't mind. Um, just a reminder to everyone here that on March 12th, uh, ULI uh, Student Career event is taking place and we have lots of uh, openings still. And in, late, in April, for those of you that are interested, uh, ULI is launching our 2013-2014 mentorship program. It's in its fifth year and it's a great way to become involved with ULI and give back to your community. And on May 1st, uh, we are hosting a program on density in the downtown and the changing Toronto skyline, which I think will be a lot of interest to many of you. So thank you to our speakers. Thank you to you all uh, for taking time out this evening. I particularly want to thank my s sisters from Metrolinx. We have quite a big showing tonight because of um, the interest in this issue, but also to everyone else. Uh, it, I think we can count this as a raging success. Thank to, thanks to Jennifer and uh, Hazel. Thank you very much. Very good. Thanks, is it? Okay. We'll be off in your job. Thank you so yeah. much. It's a very difficult yeah. one.